listening to the news on RTHK. The Israeli parliament has voted through uh, controversial amendments to laws that should bring the prime minister-designate Benjamin Netanyahu closer to establishing a government. The changes to the semi-constitutional basic law are aimed at easing the path for two leaders of ultra-Orthodox parties to take up ministerial posts in Mr. Netanyahu's cabinet. One amendment will permit Arya Derry, who heads the Shas party, to serve as a minister despite a conviction for tax fraud. A second amendment could ultimately enable the pro-settler religious Zionism party through a defense ministry post to assume broad authority over the expansion of settlements in the occupied West Bank. President Vladimir Putin has signed a decree banning the supply of oil and oil products to the countries taking part in the price cap on Russian crude oil shipments. It'll come into force for five months at the start of February. Here's the BBC's Ali McConnell. A price cap of $60 a barrel on Russian seaborne oil imports was agreed in December by the G7 group of wealthy nations, the European Union and Australia. It was introduced as a means of squeezing Moscow's funds for its war in Ukraine. The Kremlin has insisted the cap won't make any difference, but Russia is now introducing retaliatory measures. The decree signed by President Putin described these as a direct response to unfriendly actions by the United States and its allies, which it said were contradictory to international law. Police in India are investigating the deaths of two Russians in the eastern state of Odisha. Pavel Antov was a wealthy businessman and politician who had posted tweets critical of the war in Ukraine. He was found covered in blood, having apparently fallen from the window of his hotel. His traveling companion, Vladimir Bidinov, had died two days earlier from a heart attack. The local police spokesman said there were no signs of foul play. The news from RTHK. Thanks, Andrew. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Radio 3. Money Talk. Well, good morning. It is Wednesday, the 28th of December. This is James Ross with you this week on the show. Uh, in the headlines this morning, Wall Street ended mostly lower overnight at the beginning of a short trading week as investors weighed the likelihood of protracted hawkishness in Fed monetary policy against China's relaxation of COVID rules. Uh, stocks around the world had risen yesterday after China announced it would relax pandemic restrictions. And as we've been hearing, passengers arriving from abroad will no longer have to quarantine from January the 8th. Uh, meanwhile, Japan has asked three Hong Kong airlines to halt their flights to Sapporo, Fukuoka and Okinawa as it seeks to limit arrivals amid a growth in COVID-19 cases in China. Uh, Japan will also only allow direct flights from mainland China, Hong Kong and Macau to land at Narita, Haneda, Kansai and Chubu. Shares of Tesla fell 11.4% overnight after a report indicated it plans to scale back production in Shanghai. Uh, Tesla stock has now lost nearly 70% of its value this year, and the latest sell-off will cost Tesla its position among the 10 highest-valued companies in the S&P 500. 
On Friday, Japan finally unveiled a record 114.4 trillion yen budget. That's 863 billion U.S. dollars, uh, pushed up by increased military spending and higher social security costs, uh, catering to a fast aging population and piling on more debt. Uh, the additional military spending comes as Japan confronts regional security challenges from China and an unpredictable North Korea. In the U.S., thousands of stranded holiday travelers were no closer to home yesterday as the aftermath of a deadly winter storm. The grounded flights and throttled plans over the holiday weekend continued to play out at airline counters across the country. Uh, Southwest Airlines saw its stocks fall 6%. And global shipments of foldable smartphones shot up more than 60% in the third quarter, owing to high sales of Samsung's foldable devices, that according to CounterPoint Research. Uh, from July to September, foldable smartphone shipments worldwide surged to 6 million units uh, due to robust demand for Samsung's Galaxy folding phones. Well, we'll be joined on Money Talk today by Le Char, Asia Chief Economist at BBVA, and RTHK's international economic correspondent Barry Wood. Plus, we'll have a view on Japan from Neil Newman, uh, Deputy Head of Japan Research at Macquarie Capital in Tokyo. Uh, don't forget, if you have any questions for our guests, you can email us at moneytalk at rthk.hk. Text us on 63935925. Our Facebook page, Money Talk on RTHK Radio 3. And on Twitter, we're at Money Talk Radio 3. Money Talk on RTHK Radio 3. Well, let's have a quick look at the markets and starting on Wall Street, which ended mostly lower overnight at the beginning of a short trading week. As yes, investors weighed the likelihood of protracted hawkishness in Fed monetary policy against China's relaxation of COVID rules. Uh, rising Treasury yields put interest rate-sensitive growth stocks under pressure, and that dragged the Nasdaq down. Uh, the S&P 500 also fell, while the Dow was pushed up by value stocks, the Dow rising just 0.1% to 33,241. The S&P 500 down 0.4% to 3,829, and the Nasdaq dropping 1.4% to 10,353. Uh, with just four trading days remaining in 2022, all three indices are on course to post their biggest annual loss since 2008. U.S.-listed shares of Chinese firms including JD and Alibaba gained after Beijing's announcement about relaxing travel restrictions. And yes, shares of Tesla tumbling 11.4% after a report indicated it plans to scale back production in Shanghai. Uh, Tesla stock has now lost nearly 70% of its value uh, this year. European stock markets closing higher on optimism about China and a rise in resource stocks. The DAX up 0.4% to 13,995. The CAC 40 adding 0.7% to 6,550. And the FTSE 100 up slightly at 7,000. 473. Uh, Europe's stock 600 closing up a fraction at 428 exactly. A reminder that Hong Kong shares closed last Friday slightly lower following a sell-off on Wall Street fueled by ongoing worries about recession as central banks ramp up interest rates to fight inflation. The Hang Seng was down 0.4% or 86 points to 19,593. Uh, yesterday, the Shanghai Composite uh, up 1% to 3,096 and Tokyo Nikkei 225 adding 0.2% to 26,447. 
In the commodities world, Brent crude currently up 1% at $84.83 a barrel. A copper up 8 tenths of 1% at $384.05 a pound. A spot gold currently standing at $1,813.69 an ounce. Uh, in the bond markets, the U.S. 10-year bond currently showing a yield of 3.84%. In currencies, the euro buying a dollar and six cents. The U.S. dollar now standing at 133.40 Japanese yen. Uh, the pound buying uh, 9.38 Hong Kong dollars. The yuan standing at 6.96 against the U.S. dollar. And Bitcoin currently at 16,696 U.S. dollars. Uh, looking at the ASX 200 in Australia, it's down one-tenth of one percent to 7,097. Time to welcome our guests. Uh, to the show this morning. Uh, good morning to Lashar, uh, Chief Economist uh, Asia at BBVA. Good morning, Lashar. Good morning, James. Uh, nice to have you on the show as normal and also hi to Barry Wood, uh, RTHK's International Economic Correspondent in Washington. Uh, good morning. Good evening, Barry. Good evening. Good morning to you, James, and to you, Shark. Uh, nice to have you both on the show. And Barry, you've already been reporting this morning uh, on RTHK about uh, the big storm. Maybe starting with that, that's had a bit of effect um, on the markets overnight. Certainly the airline uh, uh, stocks uh, in trading on Tuesday, uh, falling Southwest Airlines down uh, 6%. Quite a big impact generally to that storm across the US, yes? Oh, it, it's been uh, dramatic and tragic in many ways because uh, Buffalo, New York has been hardest hit. They're always the snow belt capital of the United States, but it extends through Chicago and out into the Midwest, past the Rocky Mountains, into Seattle, down to Portland. So it's been really, really tough for travelers. Airlines are still gearing up, James, from the problems they've had of COVID, meaning they didn't have very many flights. Suddenly they had huge demand for flights, they didn't have enough pilots, they didn't have enough flight crew, they didn't have enough mechanics. So it's been an absolute nightmare for travelers. I mean, COVID uh, obviously continues to have an impact. And uh, the biggest story in the last 24 hours has been uh, the China opening up and uh, um, reducing further the pandemic restrictions with the possibility for uh, Chinese to travel outside the country for the first time um, in three years. So I guess that's uh, that's had quite an impact uh, on the markets, uh, both uh, in Europe and um, in the US uh, today. And uh, will continue to do so, I think, Lashar, right? Yes, I think so. Because uh, if you look at the China, they haven't opened their border to other countries for three years. So that means uh, in future, we can expect more tourists from China. We can uh, expect more purchasing power from China because uh, China, Chinese, they have been uh, out of this, uh, the rest of the world for too long. I think if they come back to the international arena again, we expect that they are going to spend more and we expect uh, all this uh, investment and trade activities will become more active. Yes. And Barry, that's going to be uh, have some impact in the U.S. and internationally as well, of course, right? Yes, it is. And I think, look, this has been so sudden, this uh, dramatic change in policy in China, 
that uh, obviously, as Li Sha says, people are very keen to get out. Uh, I'm sure there are going to be some residual restrictions because, as you suggested, this is not really over. We're still getting a lot of cases of COVID. Uh, it's, it's amazing that three years into this, we really don't know that much. And, of course, let's not forget the impact this is going to have on commodity prices. Oil prices, if China really is reopening, are going to shoot up past this $80 current level. And I think that would apply to the other kinds of commodities for the industrial machine in China. So it's both good and bad for global markets looking into 2023. What does it mean, do you think, for American manufacturers? You know, they have been uh, uh, making a lot of products in, uh, in China. People, um, companies particularly like Apple and so on. I don't think that's going to have any impact at all. I really don't. I think that in the case of Apple, uh, their manufacturing supply chain operation is not going to be changed easily. And if it is to change, it would take time. You know, there are so many different components that go into the two main Chinese cities for manufacturing and putting together the final product. Uh, they'll be very happy. Apple will be delighted if they can get production up to where it was in China and ship those all over the world. So I don't think uh, there's going to be any impact there. Tesla's another story because competition is much more fierce than it was. And Tesla's been having a lot of problems. Let's not forget that the Chinese-American who was running the Shanghai operation has just been named to head the Austin, Texas operation. So anytime you get a change at the top end, of course, what's really happening with Tesla is that Elon Musk has been diverted into Twitter. It's really not been uh, Tesla's quarter, has it? Oh, my God, it's a disaster. <laughs> you mentioned it. 70%. And let's not forget, and I think Lee Shaw would agree with me on this, this has been, 2022, a disastrous year for global stocks, particularly in the United States, and particularly if you were into technology. The, the, the losses in United States technology share price go from 30% down to 50% down. So a lot of people are feeling a lot poorer. Lushar, it's been quite a year, hasn't it, for, for stocks? Yes, uh, I fully agree with Barry. I think uh, for especially for these uh, high-tech shares, uh, this a uh, disaster for this year. Hopefully next year could get better, but now we need to worry about this uh, recession risk for next year, right? So this year we have been suffered because uh, the interest rate has been increased at uh, uh, a pace we have never seen before. But next year, maybe we will see recession. We don't know why there will go uh, have this uh, recession very deep or we, we just have a shallow recession. But anyway, I think the investors now are very cautious, especially for these uh, uh, high tech shares. Yeah. As we look back on uh, 2022, Le Char, what, what, what do you see uh, in the last 12 months? Uh, we've mentioned, you know, the stock market text particularly uh, down so much. You know, uh, how has it been this last year? I think uh, I like to say for an investor, that should be disaster. <laughs> okay, <laughs> if you look at the, the past year, we have uh, so many uncertainties. 
uh, all the risk to the downside. We have this uh, Ukraine-Russian uh, wars. We, we, we didn't expect it at all, right? And then we, we find this inflation shooting up and the central banks have to uh, hike their interest rate at the pace we have never seen before. So all these ones, they have uh, lead to a very bad year for all the investors. Uh, hopefully next year, even we have this recession risks, but uh, I, I really hope that next year things can stabilize a little bit. Although we don't expect that the economy, they can improve over the night. But uh, anyway, I think if we will see less uncertainties next year, and then the market have good chance to rebound. I think we're all hopeful of, of that. And let's, uh, yeah, let's be optimistic. Barry, Barry, as you look back over uh, the past 12 months of uh, uncertainty, quote unquote, uh, you know, what, what are the things that stick in your mind? Well, I certainly echo exactly what Lisha just said. It was the Ukraine war that started in February. No one really expected there would be a land war of that ferocity in Europe. Secondly, it was the interest rate rise, as Lee Shaw said. There hasn't been in 40 years the pace of increase. So we've doubled interest rates in the United States. We're gone to 4%, but the inflation rate is sticky at 7%. So obviously the Fed is going to, and they've said so, they're going to continue to raise rates. That's dampening the outlook for the new year. And finally, it's COVID. I mean, COVID has not, um, until the last week or two, uh, there was no sign of any change in China. China is such a big part of the global economy. Now we're all hoping that it's rushing back, but I think it's a bit too early to say. So, yes, I think it's been a disaster. Everyone, no, not everyone. So many experts are predicting recession, particularly in Europe. I think you could say that Europe is already in recession. The United States, not so sure. We're still growing at a 2% pace. So if we're lucky, we'll escape. Um, what about inflation? I mean, that has been such a uh, such a big thing around the world, and particularly in Europe, in the UK, it's caused all kinds of uh, industrial action. Are we going to see it stabilised? Do you think, Barry? Do you think uh, you know the Fed's going to get things under control? I do. I think it's already happened in a way. You can look back, I, I suspect, in a few months' time and identify that it was March, April of 2022 that inflation peaked at around 8%. And the question was, is this treadmill going to move faster? And are there going to be wage pressures from trade unions, from everybody who was paying more? Gasoline prices were very high. Food prices were high. No sign of the war coming down in Ukraine. And that treadmill has slowed down. And we're seeing a retreat, a deceleration in the inflation rate. So here we are at the end of the year. The inflation rate has gone from 85 down to seven. It's going down. The signs are clear. It's going to continue to recede. So I think the worst is over on inflation. Lucien? Yes, I think that they can bring inflation under control again. But the problem is uh, they need to pay some cost. So we don't know how high is the cost. Maybe we will have the cost of a very deep recession. So the risk is there. So I'm not uh, uh, as optimistic as Barry in terms of this uh, recession risk. <laughs> <laughs> and what about... What yeah, Lisha. Go on, go on, Barry. I was just going to say to, to you, Lisha, the, 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 um, the microchip shortage was also a factor in 2022. We had our automakers, and I think automakers on mainland China as well, Japan. They couldn't get enough chips. 
I guess that was because a year or so earlier, a lot of chip manufacturers had cut back production, assuming that COVID was going to stay very bad. Is that what happened on microchips? Are we getting back to normal? Uh, I think that now the problem is uh, uh, all these uh, chip makers, they don't know where to invest. Okay, because now this kind of the decoupling between China and the U.S. is happening. So many chip makers, they need to make their decision where to invest. You are right. I think maybe we will face another round of the shortage of this, uh, uh, these chips. Yeah. And Barry, just in closing, yeah, and just in closing, before we uh, switch to our view to uh, view uh, from Japan in a moment, um, FTX crypto. I mean, that's the crowning glory to the year, isn't it? <laughs> You're right. James, this is a big question mark, and this is not a story that has been resolved, not at all. Mr. Bankman-Fried is out in San Francisco enjoying himself with that huge bail money having been paid, but we haven't heard this story. So add that to the uncertainties for 2023, and that's probably one of the reasons a lot of people are quite pessimistic about the new year. Barry Wood, uh, the RTHK's uh, international economic correspondent in Washington, and Le Shah, Asia chief economist at BBVA. Thanks for joining us uh, this morning. Well, now it's uh, 24 minutes past eight o'clock and uh, time for us to take uh, a view on Japan. And we're joined by Neil Newman, who is deputy head of Japan research at Macquarie Capital in Tokyo. We actually find him in the UK. Uh, so good evening, uh, Neil. How are you? Yes, good morning, James. Very well, thank you. Very well. Uh, nice to have you on the show. Um, we've been hearing a lot about uh, China's COVID relaxations, but uh, it seems that Japan has had quite a reaction to that, uh, tightening border controls, ringing in uh, PCR testing and restricting airlines to uh, certain uh, airports. Um, what, what's the feeling uh, across Japan you know, to this, this change in China? Well, certainly, I mean, the, the inbound tourism um, trade, if you like, from an investment point of view, is on already. Um, in, uh, in October, we saw around half a million visitors um, from practically nothing. And then in November, it jumped to a million visitors. Um, spending is quite sharply up um, against uh, 2019 um, standards. So um, obviously there's a lot of concern about um, so the, uh, the rate of the, the, the COVID infections in, in, in uh, China. Equally, there's, a, there's a definitely a, a very a big interest in welcoming back Chinese um, uh, tourists again. So I think what's happening here is it's just being a little bit of a cautious stance initially just to try and uh, make sure that, um, you know, the whole um, the whole tourism rebound isn't disrupted. Um, and so I think, you know, Japan is always very cautious in these things. They were very slow to let people back in uh, in the first place. Um, but certainly at least, you know, they're not going to be shutting out tourists. They just want to moderate the rate at which they come back. And I think it's very clear from the, uh, the Internet searches um, that have been uh, publicized in the past few hours that um, Japan is definitely the, the number one destination that uh, mainland tourists are interested in. I think there's a bit of a worry uh, this morning from, for those uh, who are going to Japan skiing from Hong Kong that uh, airports like uh, Sapporo are going to be closed because obviously that makes it a lot more difficult to get to some of the ski slopes. 
Yeah, this is true. But I mean, having said that, I mean, the, the uh, transport within Japan is extremely efficient, extremely fast and easy to access. Um, so, yes, it is, a, it is a minor inconvenience, I think. Um, but it's certainly not going to stop Hong Kongers getting onto the, uh, the lovely fresh snow that's been <laughs> falling. And it looks like it's going to be a fantastic season as well. I know there's been a big build-up, but on Friday, Japan finally unveiled that uh, record 114.4 trillion yen budget, uh, 863 billion US dollars, pushing up um, military spending and spending on higher social security costs. Um, you know, there's, through the year, uh, there's been a lot of talk about this budget, and it's finally come to fruition. What's, what's the feeling? What, what uh, impact will it have, do you think? Well, I think it's um, there's a whole part of a, a very this is part of a big security review um, for Japan and funding the uh, the shortfalls. It's not just about defence spending, but there's a whole whole load of things that that really Japan does need to to address. Uh, with respect to its, 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 its domestic overall security. And social security is obviously one of them. The defence spending is something that's been talked about for some time, and it shouldn't be of any great surprise to anybody. From an investment point of view, it's probably going to be a slow burn uh, because if uh, you know more equipment is being um, invested in, and we're talking about sort of like drones and, and, and what have you, unmanned aerial equipment, and also cyber security, particularly in that, in that sort of field. Um, this, this is where the, 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 the spending is, is going to go, and it shouldn't be a big surprise. As I say, it is a slow burn, I think, for investors because the domestic uh, companies actually have very little margin on the, um, on the actual the business that they get from the uh, self-defense forces. Um, it all changes potentially next April when the legislation will change and Japan potentially could become an arms exporter. Then from an investment point of view, there may be more... Uh, juice, if you like, for the uh, the manufacturers of equipment. Um, but really, yes, the increase in budget, I don't think anybody's particularly surprised. Um, there is a lot of talk about how they're going to fund this, and maybe there's a bit of kicking the can down the road on here, but there's sort of talk about diverting some funds from elsewhere, you know, construction bonds, and tax receipts are up very strongly this year. So overall, I don't think there should be too much concern on sort of increase in, in, in overall debt. Um, which is somewhat misunderstood in Japan anyway. Just before we wrap it up, um, the Bank of Japan uh, not been following the Fed on, on interest rates. What's going on at the Bank of Japan at the moment? Well, this, I think, is the most exciting story of, 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 the, uh, of 2023 because the Bank of Japan and its policies is going through quite a significant transition. Um, and I think what we've seen already with the, um, the, uh, the interv- intervention in the forex markets back in, in September and then the relaxing of the control of the yield curve uh, and the effect this has had on the, uh, on the currency, strengthening the yen quite dramatically, is basically indications that the, uh, the policy that Bank of Japan has had for, for well, 10 years aggressively, 20 years slightly less aggressively, of very easy money is, is basically under transition, is, is about to change. I'm kind of thinking the next move that we will see will be the, uh, the removal of negative interest rates and going back to zero, which would signal to the markets and, and basically all the investors out there that there's a big change in the, uh, in the way that Bank of Japan is operating. And this, I believe, will happen ahead of the change of Governor, uh, Governor Kuroda retires in April. 
Well, interesting stuff. We uh, look forward to see what happens in 2023 there. Uh, that is uh, Neil Newman, Deputy Head of Japan Research at Macquarie Capital in Tokyo, joining us uh, from London this time. Also our guests today on Money Talk, Lashar, Asia Chief Economist at BBVA, and Barry Wood, RTHK's International Economic Correspondent in Washington. Just before we go, a quick look at the weather. Mainly fine, cool this morning, dry during the day with a maximum temperature of around 19 degrees. Moderate northeasterly winds becoming fresh later. Uh, the outlook mainly fine and dry for the rest of this week. And on New Year's Day, the temperature difference between day and night will be relatively large. It'll be particularly cold on Friday morning, we're told. Uh, 15 Celsius right now, 79% relative humidity. We'll see you tomorrow morning uh, for uh, Money Talk at 8 o'clock. A back chat in a moment is the best of back chat. But first, the headlines with Andrew. Researchers at the Chinese University say pregnant women in Hong Kong are taking in excessive sodium, double the recommendation of the World Health Organization. The university surveyed about 160 women in early pregnancy between 2017 and 2018 and found that half of the respondents are taking in excessive sodium. Researchers also say pregnant women are taking in insufficient micronutrients and 97% of them do not meet the recommended fiber intake. Professor Ronald Ma of the university says unhealthy diets may affect the birth weight of the newborns. For pregnancy, high sodium intake has been shown to be associated with higher risk of pregnancy-associated high blood pressure and also preeclampsia, which is a severe form of high blood pressure during pregnancy. Unhealthy diet also has long-term effects on the child, and therefore healthy diet is both beneficial for the mother as well as for the baby. Turning overseas, thousands of people in New York State are digging their way out of more than a meter of snow, which fell during a deadly Christmas blizzard across the northeast of the U.S. At least 60 people are known to have died, half of them in New York. In the worst-hit city, Buffalo, military police are being deployed to enforce a driving ban so that snow plows can clear the roads. The executive of the county of Erie, Mark Polenkar, said residents are being told not to drive. Please stay out of the city of Buffalo. Uh, you're hindering efforts to do cleanup. You see, these people are walking right around these giant dump trucks and these giant high lifts. And, and I know you got to get to the grocery store. I understand that. But be careful when you're out there. The Japanese Prime Minister Fumio Kishida is facing a renewed spate of resignations from his cabinet, having already lost three ministers in as many months. Yesterday, his reconstruction minister, Kenya Akiba, stepped down. He was facing allegations of illegally making political payments to his aides, wife and mother which he denies. His resignation was followed by Mio Sugita of Parliamentary Vice Minister for Internal Affairs. President Vladimir Putin has signed a decree banning the supply of oil and oil products to the countries taking part in the price cap on Russian crude oil shipments. It'll come into force for five months at the start of February. Here's the BBC's Ali McConnell. A price cap of $60 a barrel on Russian seaborne oil imports was agreed in December by the G7 group of wealthy nations, the European Union and Australia. It was introduced as a means of squeezing Moscow's funds for its war in Ukraine. The Kremlin has insisted the cap won't make any difference, but Russia is now introducing retaliatory measures. The decree signed by President Putin described these as a direct response to unfriendly actions by the United States and its allies, which it said were contradictory to international law. 
Police in India are investigating the deaths of two Russians in the eastern state of Odisha. Pavel Antov was a wealthy businessman and politician who had posted tweets critical of the war in Ukraine. He was found covered in blood, having apparently fallen from the window of his hotel. His traveling companion, Vladimir Bedinov, had died two days earlier from a heart attack. A local police spokesman said there were so far no signs of foul play. One of the leaders of the failed plot to kidnap the Michigan governor two years ago has been sentenced by a U.S. federal court to 16 years in prison. The plot involved members of a right-wing militia who opposed the governor's anti-COVID measures. The BBC's Sophie Long reports. Prosecutors described 39-year-old Adam Fox as the mastermind behind the plan to break into the governor's holiday home and kidnap her at gunpoint. He was convicted of conspiracy to commit kidnapping and use of a weapon of mass destruction at a second trial in August after jurors failed to reach a verdict in the first. Prosecutors said the plot to kidnap Gretchen Whitmer, who'd been openly critical of former President Trump, was intended to push the country into armed conflict as a contentious presidential race approached.